Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of... See, I almost said notes to the apocalypse that time, and I don't I, I don't know why. This is like my new like brain hook. Anyway, uh, Weird Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Uh, this is The Mountains of Madness Continued. Still, still, continued, still going. This is part three. It's going to be chapters six through eight, six, seven, and eight. So, please enjoy. Chapter six. It would be cumbrous to give a detailed consecutive account of our wanderings inside that cavernous, aeon-dead honeycomb of primal masonry, that monstrous lair of elder secrets which now echoed for the first time after uncounted epochs to the tread of human feet. This is especially true because so much of the horrible drama and revelation came from a mere study of the omnipresent mural carvings. Our flashlight photographs of those carvings will do much toward proving the truth of what we are now disclosing, and it is lamentable that we had not a larger film supply with us. As it was, we made crude notebook sketches of certain salient features after all our films were used up. The building which we had entered was one of great size and elaborateness, and gave us an impressive notion of the architecture of that nameless geologic past. The inner partitions were less massive than the outer walls, but on the lower levels were excellently preserved. Labyrinthine complexity involving curiously irregular difference in floor levels characterized the entire arrangement, and we should certainly have been lost at the very outset but for the trail of torn paper left behind us. We decided to explore the more decrepit upper parts, first of all, hence climbed aloft in the maze for a distance of some one hundred feet to where the topmost tier of chambers yawned snowily and ruinously open to the polar sky. Ascent was effected over the steep, transversely ribbed stone ramps or inclined planes which everywhere served in lieu of stairs. The rooms we encountered were of all imaginable shapes and proportions, ranging from five-pointed stars to triangles and perfect cubes. It might be safe to say that their general average was about 30 by 30 feet in floor area and 20 feet in height, though many larger apartments existed. After thoroughly examining the upper regions and the glacial level, we descended story by story into the submerged part where, indeed, we soon saw we were in a continuous maze of connected chambers and passages, probably leading over unlimited areas outside this particular building. The cyclopean massiveness and gigantism of everything about us became curiously oppressive, and there was something vaguely but deeply unhuman in all the contours, dimensions, proportions, decorations, and constructional nuances of the blasphemously archaic stonework. We soon realized, from what the carvings revealed, that this monstrous city was many million years old. We cannot yet explain the engineering principles used in the anomalous balancing and adjustment of the vast rock masses, though the function of the arch was clearly much relied on. The rooms we visited were wholly bare of all portable contents, a circumstance which sustained our belief in the city's deliberate desertion. The prime decorative feature was the almost universal system of mural sculpture, which tended to run in continuous horizontal bands three feet wide, and arranged from floor to ceiling in alternation with bands of equal width given over to geometrical arabesques. There were exceptions to this rule of arrangement, but its preponderance was overwhelming. Often, however, a series of smooth cartouches containing oddly patterned groups of dots would be sunk along one of the arabesque bands. The technique we soon saw was mature, accomplished, and aesthetically evolved to the highest degree of civilized mastery, though utterly alien in every detail to any known art tradition of the human race. In delicacy of execution, no sculpture I have ever seen could approach it. 
the minutest details of elaborate vegetation or of animal life, were rendered with astonishing vividness despite the bold scale of the carvings, whilst the conventional designs were marvels of skillful intricacy. The arabesques displayed a profound use of mathematical principles and were made up of obscurely symmetrical curves and angles based on the quantity of five. The pictorial bands followed a highly formalized tradition and involved a peculiar treatment of perspective, but had an artistic force that moved us profoundly, notwithstanding the intervening gulf of vast geologic periods. Their method of design hinged on a singular juxtaposition of the cross-section with the two-dimensional silhouette and embodied an analytical psychology beyond that of any known race of antiquity. It is useless to try to compare this art with any represented in our museums. Those who see our photographs will probably find its closest analog in certain grotesque conceptions of the most daring futurists. The arabesque tracery consisted altogether of depressed lines, whose depth on unweathered walls varied from one to two inches. When cartouches with dot groups appeared, evidently as inscriptions in some unknown and primordial language and alphabet, the depression of the smooth surface was perhaps an inch and a half, and of the dots perhaps a half inch more. The pictorial bands were in countersunk low relief, their background being depressed about two inches from the original wall surface. In some specimens, marks of a former coloration could be detected, though for the most part the untold aeons had disintegrated and banished any pigments which may have been applied. The more one studied the marvelous technique, the more one admired the things. Beneath their strict conventionalization, one could grasp the minute and accurate observation and graphic skill of the artists. And indeed, the very conventions themselves served to symbolize and accentuate the real essence or vital differentiation of every object delineated. We felt, too, that besides these recognizable excellences, there were others lurking beyond the reach of our perceptions. Certain touches here and there gave vague hints of latent symbols and stimuli which which another mental and emotional background and a fuller or different sensory equipment might have made of profound and poignant significance to us. The subject matter of the sculptures obviously came from the life of the vanished epoch of their creation and contained a large proportion of evident history. It is this abnormal historic-mindedness of the primal race, a chance circumstance operating through coincidence miraculously in our favor, which made the carving so awesomely informative to us, and which caused us to place their photography and transcription above all other considerations. In certain rooms, the dominant arrangement was varied by the presence of maps, astronomical charts, and other scientific designs of an enlarged scale, these things giving a naive and terrible corroboration to what we gathered from the pictorial friezes and dados. In hinting at what the whole revealed, I can only hope that my account will not arouse a curiosity greater than sane caution on the part of those who believe me at all. It would be tragic if any were to be allured to the realm of death and horror by the very warning meant to discourage them. Interrupting these sculptured walls were high windows and massive twelve-foot doorways, both now and then retaining the petrified wooden planks, elaborately carved and polished, of the actual shutters and doors. All metal fixtures had long ago vanished, but some of the doors remained in place and had to be forced aside as we progressed from room to room. Window frames with odd transparent panes, mostly elliptical, survived here and there, though in no considerable quantity. There were also frequent niches of great magnitude, generally empty, but once in a while containing some bizarre object carved from green soapstone, which was either broken or perhaps held too inferior to warrant removal. 
Other apertures were undoubtedly connected with bygone mechanical facilities, heating, lighting, and the like, of a sort suggested in many of the carvings. Ceilings tended to be plain, but had sometimes been inlaid with green soapstone or other tiles, mostly fallen now. Floors were also paved with such tiles, though plain stonework predominated. As I have said, all furniture and other movables were absent, but the sculptures gave a clear idea of the strange devices which had once filled these tomb-like echoing rooms. Above the glacial sheet, the floors were generally thick with detritus, litter, and debris, but farther down this condition decreased. In some of the lower chambers and corridors, there was little more than gritty dust or ancient incrustations, while occasional areas had an uncanny air of newly swept immaculateness. Of course, where rifts or collapses had occurred, the lower levels were as littered as the upper ones. A central court, as in other structures we had seen from the air, saved the inner regions from total darkness, so that we seldom had to use our electric torches in the upper rooms except when studying sculptured details. Below the ice cap, however, the twilight deepened, and in many parts of the tangled ground level there was an approach to absolute blackness. To form even a rudimentary idea of our thoughts and feelings as we penetrated this aeon-silent maze of unhuman masonry, one must correlate a hopelessly bewildering chaos of fugitive moods, memories, and impressions. The sheer appalling antiquity and lethal desolation of the place were enough to overwhelm almost any sensitive person, but added to these elements were the recent unexplained horror at the camp and the revelations all too soon affected by the terrible mural sculptures around us. The moment we came upon a perfect section of carving where no ambiguity of interpretation could exist, it took only a brief study to give us the hideous truth, a truth which it would be naive to claim Danforth and I had not independently suspected before, though we had carefully refrained from even hinting it to each other. There could now be no further merciful doubt about the nature of the beings which had built and inhabited this monstrous dead city millions of years ago, when man's ancestors were primitive, archaic mammals, and vast dinosaurs roamed the tropical steppes of Europe and Asia. We had previously clung to a desperate alternative and insisted, each to himself, that the omnipresence of the five-pointed motifs meant only some cultural or religious exaltation of the archaean natural object which had so patently embodied the quality of five-pointedness. As the decorative motifs of Minoan Crete exalted the sacred bull, those of Egypt the scarab, those of Rome the wolf and the eagle, and those of various savage tribes some chosen totem animal. But this lone refuge was now stripped from us, and we were forced to face definitely the reason-shaking realization which the reader of these pages has doubtless long ago anticipated. I can scarcely bear to write it down in black and white even now, but perhaps that will not be necessary. The things once rearing and dwelling in this frightful masonry in the age of dinosaurs were not indeed dinosaurs, but far worse. Mere dinosaurs were new and almost brainless objects, but the builders of the city were wise and old and had left certain traces in rocks even then laid down well nigh a thousand million years, rocks laid down before the true life of Earth had advanced beyond plastic groups of cells, rocks laid down before the true life of Earth had existed at all. They were the makers and enslavers of that life, and above all doubt the originals of the fiendish elder myths which things like the Nicotic Manuscripts and the Necronomicon affrightedly hint about. They were the great old ones that had filtered down from the stars when Earth was young, 
the beings whose substance and alien evolution had shaped and whose powers were such as this planet had never bred. And to think that only the day before Danforth and I had actually looked upon fragments of their millennially fossilized substance and that poor Lake and his party had seen their complete outlines. It is, of course, impossible for me to relate in proper order the stages by which we picked up what we know of that monstrous chapter of pre-human life. After the first shock of the certain revelation, we had to pause a while to recuperate, and it was fully three o'clock before we got started on our actual tour of systematic research. The sculptures in the building we entered were of relatively late date, perhaps two million years ago, as checked up by geological, biological, and astronomical features, and embodied an art which could be called decadent in comparison with that of specimens we found in older buildings after crossing bridges under the glacial sheet. One edifice, hewn from the solid rock, seemed to go back forty or possibly even fifty million years, to the lower Eocene or Upper Cretaceous, and contained bas-reliefs of an artistry surpassing anything else, with one tremendous exception that we encountered. That was, we have since agreed, the oldest domestic structure we traversed. Were it not for the support of those flashlights soon to be made public, I would refrain from telling what I found and inferred lest I be confined as a madman. Of course, the infinitely early parts of the patchwork tale, representing the pre-terrestrial life of the star-headed beings on other planets, in other galaxies, and in other universes, can readily be interpreted as the fantastic mythology of those beings themselves. Yet, such parts sometimes involve designs and diagrams so uncannily close to the latest finding of mathematics and astrophysics that I scarcely know what to think. Let others judge when they see the photographs I shall publish. Naturally, no one set of carvings which we encountered told more than a fraction of any connected story, nor did we even begin to come upon the various stages of that story in their proper order. Some of the vast rooms were independent units so far as their designs were concerned, whilst in other cases a continuous chronicle would be carried through a series of rooms and corridors. The best of the maps and diagrams were on the walls of a frightful abyss below even the ancient ground level, a cavern perhaps 200 feet square and 60 feet high, which had almost undoubtedly been an educational center of some sort. There were many provoking repetitions of the same material in different rooms and buildings, since certain chapters of experience and certain summaries or phases of racial history had evidently been favorites with different decorators or dwellers. Sometimes, though, variant versions of the same theme proved useful in settling debatable points and filling up gaps. I still wonder that we deduced so much in the short time at our disposal. Of course, we even now have only the barest outline, and much of that was obtained later on from a study of the photographs and sketches we made. It may be the effect of this later study, the revived memories and vague impressions acting in conjunction with his general sensitiveness and with that final supposed horror, glimpse whose essence he will not reveal even to me, which has been the immediate source of Danforth's present breakdown. But it had to be, for we could not issue our warning intelligently without the fullest possible information, and the issuance of that warning is a prime necessity. Certain lingering influences in that unknown Antarctic world of disordered time and alien natural law make it imperative that further exploration be discouraged. Chapter 7 The full story, so far as deciphered, will eventually appear in an official bulletin of Miskatonic University. Here I shall sketch only the salient highlights in a formless, rambling way. 
myth or otherwise, the sculptures told of the coming of those star-headed things to the nation's lifeless earth out of cosmic space. Their coming, and the coming of many other alien entities such as at certain times embark upon spatial pioneering. They seemed able to traverse the interstellar ether on their vast membranous wings, thus oddly confirming some curious hill folklore long ago told me by an antiquarian colleague. They had lived under the sea a good deal, building fantastic cities and fighting terrific battles with nameless adversaries by means of intricate devices employing unknown principles of energy. Evidently, their scientific and mechanical knowledge far surpassed man's today, though they made use of its more widespread and elaborate forms only when obliged to. Some of the sculptures suggested that they had passed through a stage of mechanized life on other planets, but had receded upon finding its effects emotionally unsatisfying. Their preternatural toughness of organization and simplicity of natural wants made them peculiarly able to live on a high plane without the more specialized fruits of artificial manufacture and even without garments, except for occasional protection against the elements. It was under the sea, at first for food and later for other purposes, that they first created earth life, using available substances according to long-known methods. The more elaborate experiments came after the annihilation of various cosmic enemies. They had done the same thing on other planets, having manufactured not only necessary foods, but certain multicellular protoplasmic masses capable of molding their tissues into all sorts of temporary organs under hypnotic influence, and thereby forming ideal slaves to perform the heavy work of the community. These viscous masses were without doubt what Abdul al-Hazred whispered about as the Shoggoths in his frightful Necronomicon, though even that mad Arab had not hinted that any existed on Earth, except in the dreams of those who had chewed a certain alkaloidal herb. When the star-headed old ones on this planet had synthesized their simple food forms and bred a good supply of Shoggoths, they allowed other cell groups to develop into other forms of animal and vegetable life for sundry purposes, extirpating any whose presence became troublesome. With the aid of the Shoggoths, whose expansions could be made to lift prodigious weights, the small, low cities under the sea grew to vast and imposing labyrinths of stone, not unlike those which later rose on land. Indeed, the highly adaptable Old Ones had lived much on land in other parts of the universe, and probably retained many traditions of land construction. As we studied the architecture of all these sculptured Paleogean cities, including that whose aeon-dead corridors we were even then traversing, we were impressed by a curious coincidence which we have not yet tried to explain even to ourselves. The tops of the buildings, which in the actual city around us had, of course, been weathered into shapeless ruins ages ago, were clearly displayed in the bas-reliefs and showed vast clusters of needle-like spires, delicate finials on certain cone and pyramid apexes, and tiers of thin horizontal scalloped discs capping cylindrical shafts. This was exactly what we had seen in that monstrous and portentous mirage cast by a dead city whence such skyline features had been absent for thousands and tens of thousands of years, which loomed on our ignorant eyes across the unfathomed mountains of madness as we first approached poor Lake's ill-fated camp. Of the life of the Old Ones, both under the sea and after part of them migrated to land, volumes could be written. Those in shallow water had continued the fullest use of the eyes at the ends of their five main head tentacles, and had practiced the arts of sculpture and of writing in quite the usual way. 
the writing accomplished with a stylus on waterproof waxen surfaces. Those lower down in the ocean depths, though they used a curious phosphorescent organism to furnish light, pieced out their vision with obscure special senses operating through the prismatic cilia on their heads, senses which rendered all the old ones partly independent of light in emergencies. Their forms of sculpture and writing had changed curiously during the descent, embodying certain apparently chemical coating processes, probably to secure phosphorescence, which the bas-reliefs could not make clear to us. The beings moved in the sea partly by swimming, using the lateral crinoid arms, and partly by wriggling with the lower tier of tentacles containing the pseudo-feet. Occasionally they accomplished long swoops with the auxiliary use of two or more sets of their fan-like folding wings. On land they locally used the pseudo-feet, but now and then flew to great heights or over long distances with their wings. The many slender tentacles into which the crinoid arms branched were infinitely delicate, flexible, strong, and accurate in muscular nervous coordination, ensuring the utmost skill and dexterity in all artistic and other manual operations. The toughness of the things was almost incredible. Even the terrific pressure of the deepest sea bottoms appeared powerless to harm them. Very few seemed to die at all except by violence, and their burial places were very limited. The fact that they covered their vertically inhumed dead with five-pointed inscribed mounds set up thoughts in Danforth and me which made a fresh pause and recuperation necessary after the sculptures revealed it. The beings multiplied by means of spores, like vegetable pterodophytes, as Lake had suspected, but owing to their prodigious toughness and longevity and consequent lack of replacement needs, they did not encourage the large-scale development of new prothalia except when they had new regions to colonize. The young matured swiftly and received an education evidently beyond any standard we can imagine. The prevailing intellectual and aesthetic life was highly evolved and produced a tenaciously enduring set of customs and institutions, which I shall describe more fully in my coming monograph. These varied slightly according to sea or land residents, but had the same foundations and essentials. Though able, like vegetables, to derive nourishment from inorganic substances, they vastly preferred organic, and especially animal, food. They ate uncooked marine life under the sea, but cooked their viands on land. They hunted game and raised meat herds, slaughtering with sharp weapons whose odd marks on certain fossil bones our expedition had noted. They resisted all ordinary temperatures marvelously, and in their natural state could live in water down to freezing. When the great chill of the Pleistocene drew on, however, nearly a million years ago, the land-dwellers had to resort to special measures, including artificial heating, until at last the deadly cold appears to have driven them back into the sea. For their prehistoric flights through cosmic space, legend said, they absorbed certain chemicals and became almost independent of eating, breathing, or heat conditions, but by the time of the great cold they had lost track of the method. In any case, they could not have prolonged the artificial state indefinitely without harm. Being non-pairing and semi-vegetable in structure, the old ones had no biological basis for the family phase of mammal life, but seemed to organize large households on the principles of comfortable space utility and, as we deduced from the pictured occupations and diversions of co-dwellers, congenial mental association. In furnishing their homes, they kept everything in the center of the huge rooms, leaving all the wall spaces free for decorative treatment. Lighting, in the case of the land inhabitants, 
was accomplished by a device probably electrochemical in nature. Both on land and underwater, they used curious tables, chairs, and couches like cylindrical frames, for they rested and slept upright with folded-down tentacles and racks for hinged sets of dotted surfaces forming their books. Government was evidently complex and probably socialistic, though no certainties in this regard could be deduced from the sculptures we saw. There was extensive commerce, both local and between different cities, certain small, flat counters, five-pointed and inscribed, serving as money. Probably the smaller of the various greenish soapstones found by our expedition were pieces of such currency. Though the culture was mainly urban, some agriculture and much stock-raising existed. Mining and a limited amount of manufacturing were also practiced. Travel was very frequent, but permanent migration seemed relatively rare, except for the vast colonizing movements by which the race expanded. For personal locomotion, no external aid was used, since in land, air, and water movement alike, the old one seemed to possess excessively vast capacities for speed. Loads, however, were drawn by beasts of burden, shoggoths under the sea, and a curious variety of primitive vertebrates in the later years of land existence. These vertebrates, as well as an infinity of other life forms, animal and vegetable, marine, terrestrial, and aerial, were the products of unguided evolution acting on life cells made by the old ones, but escaping beyond their radius of attention. They had been suffered to develop unchecked because they had not come in conflict with the dominant beings. Bothersome forms, of course, were mechanically exterminated. It interested us to see in some of the very last and most decadent sculptures a shambling primitive mammal used sometimes for food and sometimes as an amusing buffoon by the land dwellers, whose vaguely simian and human foreshadowings were unmistakable. In the building of land cities, the huge stone blocks of the high towers were generally lifted by vast-winged pterodactyls of a species heretofore unknown to paleontology. The persistence with which the old ones survived various geologic changes and convulsions of the Earth's crust was little short of miraculous. Though few or none of their first cities seemed to have remained beyond the Archaean Age, there was no interruption in their civilization nor in the transmission of their records. Their original place of advent to the planet was the Antarctic Ocean, and it is likely that they came not long after the matter forming the moon was wrenched from the neighboring South Pacific. According to one of the sculptured maps, the whole globe was then underwater, with stone cities scattered farther and farther from the Antarctic as aeons passed. Another map shows a vast bulk of dry land around the South Pole, where it is evident that some of the beings made experimental settlements, though their main centers were transferred to the nearest sea bottom. Later maps, which display the landmass as cracking and drifting and sending certain detached parts northward, uphold in a striking way the theories of continental drift lately advanced by Taylor, Wegner, and Jolie. With the upheaval of new land in the South Pacific, tremendous events began. Some of the marine cities were hopelessly shattered, yet that was not the worst misfortune. Another race, a land race of beings shaped like octopi and probably corresponding to fabulous pre-human spawn of Cthulhu, soon began filtering down from cosmic infinity and precipitated a monstrous war which for a time drove the old ones wholly back to the sea, a colossal blow in view of the increasing land settlements. Later, peace was made, and the new lands were given to the Cthulhu spawn, whilst the old ones held the sea and the older lands. 
New land cities were founded, the greatest of them in the Antarctic, for this region of first arrival was sacred. From then on, as before, the Antarctic remained the center of the Old One civilization, and all the cities built there by the Cthulhu spawn were blotted out. Then suddenly the lands of the Pacific sank again, taking with them the frightful stone city of Relay, and all the cosmic octopi, so that the Old Ones were again supreme on the planet, except for one shadowy fear about which they did not like to speak. At a rather later age, their cities dotted all the land and water areas of the globe, hence the recommendation in my coming monograph that some archaeologists make systematic borings with Pabodi's type of apparatus in certain widely separated regions. The steady trend down the ages was from water to land, a movement encouraged by the rise of new land masses, though the ocean was never wholly deserted. Another cause of the landward movement was the new difficulty in breeding and managing the Shoggoths, upon which successful sea life depended. With the march of time, as the sculpture sadly confessed, the art of creating new life from inorganic matter had been lost, so that the old ones had to depend on the molding of forms already in existence. On land, the great reptiles proved highly tractable, but the Shoggoths of the sea, reproducing by fission and acquiring a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence, presented for a time a formidable problem. They had always been controlled through the hypnotic suggestions of the old ones, and had modeled their tough plasticity into various useful temporary limbs and organs. But now their self-modeling powers were sometimes exercised independently and in various imitative forms implanted by past suggestion. They had, it seems, developed a semi-stable brain whose separate and occasionally stubborn volition echoed the will of the old ones without always obeying it. Sculptured images of these Shoggoths filled Danforth and me with horror and loathing. They were normally shapeless entities composed of a viscous jelly which looked like an agglutination of bubbles, and each averaged about fifteen feet in diameter when a sphere. They had, however, a constantly shifting shape and volume, throwing out temporary developments or forming apparent organs of sight, hearing, and speech in imitation of their masters, either spontaneously or according to suggestion. They seem to have become peculiarly intractable toward the middle of the Permian Age, perhaps 150 million years ago, when a veritable war of resubjugation was waged upon them by the marine old ones. Pictures of this war and of the headless, slime-coated fashion in which the Shoggoths typically left their slain victims held a marvelously fearsome quality, despite the intervening abyss of untold ages. The Old Ones had used curious weapons of molecular and atomic disturbances against the rebel entities, and in the end had achieved a complete victory. Thereafter, the sculptures showed a period in which Shoggoths were tamed and broken by armed old ones, as the wild horses of the American West were tamed by cowboys. Though during the rebellion the Shoggoths had shown an ability to live out of water, this transition was not encouraged, since their usefulness on land would hardly have been commensurate with the trouble of their management. During the Jurassic Age, the old ones met fresh adversity in the form of a new invasion from outer space, this time by half-fungus, half-crustacean creatures, creatures undoubtedly the same as those figuring in certain whispered hill legends of the north, and remembered in the Himalayas as the Migo, or Abominable Snowmen. To fight these beings, the Old Ones attempted, for the first time since their Terran advent, to sally forth again into the planetary ether. 
but despite all traditional preparations, found it no longer possible to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Whatever the old secret of interstellar travel had been, it was now definitely lost to the race. In the end, the Migo drove the Old Ones out of all the northern lands, though they were powerless to disturb those in the sea. Little by little, the slow retreat of the elder race to their original Antarctic habitat was beginning. It was curious to note from the pictured battles that both the Cthulhu spawn and the Migo seemed to have been composed of matter more widely different from that which we know than was the substance of the Old Ones. They were able to undergo transformations and reintegrations impossible for their adversaries, and seem therefore to have originally come from even remoter gulfs of the cosmic space. The Old Ones, but for their abnormal toughness and peculiar vital properties, were strictly material, and must have had their absolute origin within the known space-time continuum, whereas the first sources of the other beings can only be guessed at with bated breath. All this, of course, assuming that the non-terrestrial linkages and the anomalies ascribed to the invading foes are not pure mythology. Conceivably, the Old Ones might have invented a cosmic framework to account for their occasional defeats, since historical interest and pride obviously formed their chief psychological element. It is significant that their annals failed to mention many advanced and potent races of beings whose mighty cultures and towering cities figure persistently in certain obscure legends. The changing state of the world through long geologic ages appeared with startling vividness in many of the sculptured maps and scenes. In certain cases, existing science will require revision, while in other cases its bold deductions are magnificently confirmed. As I have said, the hypothesis of Taylor, Wegner, and Jolie that all the continents are fragments of an original Antarctic landmass which cracked from centrifugal force and drifted apart over a technically viscous lower surface, an hypothesis suggested by such things as the complementary outlines of Africa and South America and the way the great mountain chains are rolled and shoved up, receives striking support from this uncanny source. Maps, evidently showing the Carboniferous world of a hundred million or more years ago, displayed significant rifts and chasms destined later to separate Africa from the once-continuous realms of Europe, then the Volusia of primal legend, Asia, the Americas, and the Antarctic continent. Other charts, and most significantly one in connection with the founding fifty million years ago of the vast dead city around us, showed all the present continents well differentiated, and in the latest discoverable specimen, dating perhaps from the Pliocene age, the approximate world of today appeared quite clearly, despite the linkage of Alaska with Siberia, of North America with Europe through Greenland, and of South America with the Antarctic continent through Gramland. In the Carboniferous map, the whole globe, ocean floor, and rifted landmass alike, bore symbols of the Old One's vast stone cities, but in the later charts, the gradual recession toward the Antarctic became very plain. The final Pliocene specimen showed no land cities except on the Antarctic continent and the tip of South America, nor any ocean cities north of the 50th parallel of South Latitude. Knowledge and interest in the northern world, save for a study of coastlines, probably made during long exploration flights on those fan-like membranous wings, had evidently declined to zero among the old ones. Destruction of cities through the upthrust of mountains, the centrifugal rending of continents, the seismic convulsions of land or sea bottom and other natural causes was a matter of common record, 
and it was curious to observe how fewer and fewer replacements were made as the ages wore on. The vast dead megalopolis that yawned around us seemed to be the last general center of the race, built early in the Cretaceous Age after a titanic earth-buckling had obliterated a still vaster predecessor not far distant. It appeared that this general region was the most sacred spot of all, where reputedly the first old ones had settled on a primal sea-bottom. In the new city, many of whose features we could recognize in the sculptures, but which stretched fully a hundred miles along the mountain range in each direction, beyond the farthest limits of our aerial survey, there were reputed to be preserved certain sacred stones, forming part of the first sea-bottom, which thrust up to light after long epochs in the course of the general crumbling of strata. Chapter 8 Naturally, Danforth and I studied, with a special interest and a peculiarly personal sense of awe, everything pertaining to the immediate district in which we were. Of this local material there was naturally a vast abundance, and on the tangled ground level of the city we were lucky enough to find a house of very late date whose walls, though somewhat damaged by a neighboring rift, contained sculptures of decadent workmanship carrying the story of the region much beyond the period of the Pliocene map whence we derived our last general glimpse of the pre-human world. This was the last place we examined in detail, since what we found there gave us a fresh immediate objective. Certainly we were in one of the strangest, weirdest, and most terrible of all the corners of Earth's globe. Of all existing lands, it was infinitely the most ancient. The conviction grew upon us that this hideous upland must indeed be the fabled nightmare plateau of Lang, which even the mad author of the Necronomicon was reluctant to discuss. The great mountain chain was tremendously long, starting as a low range at Lewitpoldland on the east coast of Weddell Sea, and virtually crossing the entire continent. That really high part stretched in a mighty arc from about latitude 82 degrees, east longitude 60 degrees, to latitude 70 degrees, east longitude 115 degrees. With its concave side toward our camp, and its seaward end in the region of that long ice-locked coast whose hills were glimpsed by Wilkes and Mawson at the Antarctic Circle. With its concave side toward our camp, and its seaward end in the region of that long ice-locked coast whose hills were glimpsed by Wilkes and Mawson at the Antarctic Circle. Yet even more monstrous exaggerations of nature seem disturbingly close at hand. I have said that these peaks are higher than the Himalayas, but the sculptures forbid me to say that they are Earth's highest. That grim honor is beyond doubt reserved for something which half the sculptures hesitated to record at all, whilst others approached it with obvious repugnance and trepidation. It seems that there was one part of the ancient land, the first part that ever rose from the waters after the Earth had flung off the moon and the old ones had seeped down from the stars, which had come to be shunned as vaguely and namelessly evil. Cities built there had crumbled before their time, and had been found suddenly deserted. Then, when the first gray earth-buckling had convulsed the region in the Comanchean Age, a frightful line of peaks had shot suddenly up amidst the most appalling din and chaos, and earth had received her loftiest and most terrible mountains. If the scale of the carvings was correct, these abhorred things must have been over 40,000 feet high, radically vaster than even the shocking mountains of madness we had crossed. They extended, it appeared, from about latitude 77 degrees, east longitude 70 degrees, to latitude 70 degrees, east longitude 100 degrees, less than 300 miles away from the dead city, 
so that we could have spied their dreaded summits in the dim western distance had it not been for that vague opalescent haze. Their northern end must likewise be visible from the long Antarctic Circle coastline at Queen Mary Land. Some of the old ones, in the decadent days, had made strange prayers to those mountains, but none ever went near them or dared to guess what lay beyond. No human eye had ever seen them, and as I studied the emotions conveyed in the carvings, I prayed that none ever might. There are protecting hills along the coast beyond them, Queen Mary and Kaiser Wilhelm lands, and I thank heaven no one has been able to land and climb those hills. I am not as skeptical about old tales and fears as I used to be, and I do not laugh now at the pre-human sculptor's notion that lightning paused meaningfully now and then at each of the brooding crests, and that an unexplained glow shone from one of those terrible pinnacles all through the long polar night. There may be a very real and very monstrous meaning in the old narcotic whispers about Kadath in the cold waste. But the terrain close at hand was hardly less strange, even if less namelessly accursed. Soon after the founding of the city, the great mountain range became the seat of the principal temples, and many carvings showed what grotesque and fantastic towers had pierced the sky, where now we saw only the curiously clinging cubes and ramparts. In the course of ages, the caves had appeared and had been shaped into adjuncts of the temples. With the advance of still later epochs, all the limestone veins of the region were hollowed out by groundwaters, so that the mountains, the foothills, and the plains below them were a veritable network of connected caverns and galleries. Many graphic sculptures told of explorations deep underground and of the final discovery of the Stygian sunless sea that lurked at Earth's bowels. This vast, nighted gulf had undoubtedly been worn by the great river which flowed down from the nameless and horrible westward mountains, and which had formerly turned at the base of the Old One's range and flowed beside that chain into the Indian Ocean between Bud and Tottenlands on Wilkes's coastline. Little by little it had eaten away the limestone hill base at its turning, till at last its sapping currents reached the caverns of the groundwaters and joined with them in digging a deeper abyss. Finally, its whole bulk emptied into the hollow hills and left the old bed toward the ocean dry. Much of the later city, as we now found it, had been built over that former bed. The old ones, understanding what had happened and exercising their always keen artistic sense, had carved into ornate pylons those headlands of the foothills where the great stream began its descent into eternal darkness. This river, once crossed by scores of noble stone bridges, was plainly the one whose extinct course we had seen in our aeroplane survey. Its position in different carvings of the city helped us to orient ourselves to the scene as it had been at various stages of the region's age-long aeon-dead history, so that we were able to sketch a hasty but careful map of the salient features, squares, important buildings, and the like, for guidance in further explorations. We could soon reconstruct in fancy the whole stupendous thing as it was a million or ten million or fifty million years ago, for the sculptures told us exactly what the buildings and mountains and squares and suburbs and landscape setting and luxuriant tertiary vegetation had looked like. It must have had a marvelous and mystic beauty, and as I thought of it, I almost forgot the clammy sense of sinister oppression with which the city's inhuman age and massiveness and deadness and remoteness and glacial twilight had choked and weighed on my spirit. Yet according to certain carvings, the denizens of that city had themselves known the clutch of oppressive terror, 
for there was a somber and recurrent type of scene in which the old ones were shown in the act of recoiling affrightedly from some object, never allowed to appear in the design, found in the great river, and indicated as having been washed down through waving vine-draped psyched forests from those horrible westward mountains. It was only in the one late-built house with the decadent carvings that we obtained any foreshadowing of the final calamity leading to the city's desertion. Undoubtedly, there must have been many sculptures of the same age elsewhere, even allowing for the slackened energies and aspirations of a stressful and uncertain period. Indeed, very certain evidence of the existence of others came to us shortly afterward, but this was the first and only set we directly encountered. We meant to look farther later on, but, as I have said, immediate conditions dictated another present objective. There would, though, have been a limit, for after all hope of a long future occupancy of the place had perished among the old ones, there could not but have been a complete cessation of mural decoration. The ultimate blow, of course, was the coming of the great cold, which once held most of the earth in thrall, and which has never departed from the ill-fated poles. The great cold that, at the world's other extremity, put an end to the fabled lands of Lomar and Hyperborea. Just when this tendency began in the Antarctic, it would be hard to say in terms of exact years. Nowadays we set the beginning of the general glacial periods at a distance of about 500,000 years from the present, but at the poles the terrible scourge must have commenced much earlier. All quantitative estimates are partly guesswork, but it is quite likely that the decadent sculptures were made considerably less than a million years ago, and that the actual desertion of the city was complete long before the conventional opening of the Pleistocene, 500,000 years ago, as reckoned in terms of the Earth's whole surface. In the decadent sculptures there were signs of thinner vegetation everywhere, and of a decreased country life on the part of the old ones. Heating devices were shown in the houses, and winter travelers were represented as muffled and protective fabrics. Then we saw a series of cartouches, the continuous band arrangement being frequently interrupted in these late carvings, depicting a constantly growing migration to the nearest refuges of greater warmth, some fleeing to cities under the sea off the faraway coast, and some clambering down through networks of limestone caverns in the hollow hills to the neighboring black abyss of subterranean waters. In the end, it seems to have been the neighboring abyss which received the greatest colonization. This was partly due, no doubt, to the traditional sacredness of this special region, but may have been more conclusively determined by the opportunities it gave for continuing the use of the great temples on the honeycombed mountains, and for retaining the vast land city as a place of summer residence and base of communication with various mines. The linkage of old and new abodes was made more effective by means of several gratings and improvements along the connecting routes, including the chiseling of numerous direct tunnels from the ancient metropolis to the Black Abyss, sharply down-pointing tunnels whose mouths we carefully drew, according to our most thoughtful estimates on the guide map we were compiling. It was obvious that at least two of these tunnels lay within a reasonable exploring distance of where we were, both being on the mountainward edge of the city, one less than a quarter of a mile toward the ancient river course, and the other perhaps twice that distance in the opposite direction. The abyss, it seems, had shelving shores of dry land at certain places, but the old ones built their new city underwater, no doubt because of its greater certainty of uniform warmth. The depth of the hidden sea appears to have been very great, so that the Earth's internal heat could ensure its habitability for an indefinite period. 
the beings seem to have had no trouble in adapting themselves to part-time and eventually, of course, whole-time residents underwater, since they had never allowed their gill systems to atrophy. There were many sculptures which showed how they had always frequently visited their submarine kinsfolk elsewhere, and how they had habitually bathed on the deep bottom of their great river. The darkness of inner earth could likewise have been no deterrent to a race accustomed to long Antarctic nights. Decadent though their style undoubtedly was, these latest carvings had a truly epic quality, where they told of the building of the new city in the cavern sea. The old ones had gone about it scientifically, quarrying insoluble rocks from the heart of the honeycombed mountains, and employing expert workers from the nearest submarine city to perform the construction according to the best methods. These workers brought with them all that was necessary to establish the new venture, shoggoth tissue from which to breed stone lifters and subsequent beasts of burden for the cavern city, and other protoplasmic matter to mold into phosphorescent organisms for lighting purposes. At last, a mighty metropolis rose on the bottom of that Stygian sea, its architecture much like that of the city above, and its workmanship displaying relatively little decadence because of the precise mathematical element inherent in building operations. The newly bred Shoggoths grew to enormous size and singular intelligence, and were represented as taking and executing orders with marvelous quickness. They seemed to converse with the old ones by mimicking their voices, a sort of musical piping over a wide range, if poor Lake's dissection had indicated all right, if poor Lake's dissection had indicated all right, and to work more from spoken commands than from hypnotic suggestions as in earlier times. They were, however, kept in admirable control. The phosphorescent organisms supplied light with vast effectiveness, and doubtless atoned for the loss of the familiar polar auroras of the outer world night. Art and decoration were pursued, though of course with a certain decadence. The old ones seemed to realize this falling off themselves, and in many cases anticipated the policy of Constantine the Great by transplanting especially fine blocks of ancient carving from their land city, just as the emperor, in a similar age of decline, stripped Greece and Asia of their finest art to give his new Byzantine capital greater splendors than its own people could create. That the transfer of sculptured blocks had not been more extensive was doubtless owing to the fact that the land city was not at first wholly abandoned. By the time total abandonment did occur, and it surely must have occurred before the polar Pleistocene was far advanced, the old ones had perhaps become satisfied with their decadent art, or had ceased to recognize the superior merit of the older carvings. At any rate, the aeon-silent ruins around us had certainly undergone no wholesale sculptural denudation, though all the best separate statues, like other movables, had been taken away. The decadent cartouches and dados telling this story were, as I have said, the latest we could find in our limited search. They left us with a picture of the old one shuttling back and forth betwixt the land city in summer and the sea cavern city in winter, and sometimes trading with the sea-bottom cities off the Antarctic coast. By this time, the ultimate doom of the land city must have been recognized, for the sculptures showed many signs of the cold's malign encroachments. Vegetation was declining, and the terrible snows of the winter no longer melted completely, even in midsummer. The saurian livestock were nearly all dead, and the mammals were standing it none too well. To keep on with the work of the upper world, it had become necessary to adapt some of the amorphous and curiously cold-resistant shoggoths to land life, a thing the old ones had formerly been reluctant to do. 
The great river was now lifeless, and the upper sea had lost most of its denizens, except the seals and whales. All the birds had flown away, save only the great, grotesque penguins. What had happened afterward, we could only guess. How long had the new sea cavern city survived? Was it still down there, a stony corpse in eternal blackness? Had the subterranean waters frozen at last? To what fate had the ocean-bottom cities of the outer world been delivered? Had any of the old ones shifted north ahead of the creeping ice cap? Existing geology shows no trace of their presence. Had the frightful Migo been still a menace in the outer land world of the north? Could one be sure of what might or might not linger, even to this day, in the lightless and unplumbed abysses of Earth's deepest waters? Those things had seemingly been able to withstand any amount of pressure, and men of the sea have fished up curious objects at times. And has the killer whale theory really explained the savage and mysterious scars on Antarctic seals noticed a generation ago by Borsgravink? The specimens found by Poor Lake did not enter into these guesses, for their geologic setting proved them to have lived at what must have been a very early date in the land city's history. They were, according to their location, certainly not less than 30 million years old, and we reflected that in their day the sea cavern city, and indeed the cavern itself, had had no existence. They would have remembered an older scene, with lush tertiary vegetation everywhere, a younger land city of flourishing arts around them, and a great river sweeping northward along the base of the mighty mountains toward a faraway tropic ocean. And yet we could not help thinking about these specimens, especially about the eight perfect ones that were missing from Lake's hideously ravaged camp. There was something abnormal about that whole business. The strange things we had tried so hard to lay to somebody's madness, those frightful graves, the amount and nature of the missing material, Gedney, the unearthly toughness of those archaic monstrosities, and the queer vital freaks the sculptures now showed the race to have. Danforth and I had seen a good deal in the last few hours, and were prepared to believe and keep silent about many appalling and incredible secrets of primal nature. And that is the end of Part 3 of The Mountains of Madness. Next week will be the exciting conclusion, and I think next week is going to be just a ridiculously long episode. And if it is, I might just split it up into two episodes and just be like, here you go, two episodes on the same day, deal with it. Um, cause it's just, it's just, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. There's four chapters left. Anyway. Hi, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you for all of the kind words that have been sent in and the reviews that have been written. I really, really appreciate them. Um, please feel free to leave me a rating and a review on iTunes. Um, those are always helpful to me at least. Um, I, I like to know what people think of the show. Uh, you can email me your thoughts at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. You can message me on Twitter uh, at weirdtalespod. Um, I think that's it. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. It's been uh, a really good month for the show. I don't think I've gone, as of the date of this recording, uh, gone below 200, uh, 200 downloads per day, which is like, that's like a new record for me. Like 17 days straight of over 200 is that's awesome for me so thank you all so so much i really appreciate it you're all just the absolute best podcast audience ever thank you so much for listening and uh uh please 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 if you go out no matter where you go no matter what you do wear a mask okay please it's not 
for your protection. It's for everybody else's protection. If we all wear masks, this whole thing goes away so much sooner. I wear a mask everywhere I go. Please, please, please wear a mask everywhere you go. If you decide to be one of those people that just because your state has opened up erroneously and and horribly, like, and you decide to go out to eat at a restaurant, be nice to the serving staff. Be super nice. Don't be an asshole. Tip well, because they are there risking their lives. I am there risking my life. Like, to put not too fine a point on it. That's what's happening. Sorry. It's like a thing. It's a thing. It's been a thing all day. This has been a thing all day. All right. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. Wear a mask if you go out. Stay safe. Stay indoors whenever possible. And I will see you next week. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the bloops. Here's some good news, everybody. The restaurant has been open for like three days, and so far, I'm not sick. Nobody is wearing a mask when they come in to eat. We ordered Jet's pizza last night and uh, got a, like a brownie dessert with it, and I ate. I made the mistake of eating a brownie before starting to record, and now I can't talk properly. <clears throat> my wife is here listening to me record as I'm doing this, so everybody say hi to my wife. And probably retained many traditions of land construction as we studied the architecture of all these sculptured Paleogean cities. There's a period there. That's two different sentences. Maps evidently showing the Carboniferous world of a hundred million years. Maps evidently showing the Carboniferous world of a hundred million or more years ago displayed significant rifts and chasms destined later to separate Africa from the once continuous realms of Europe than the Volusia of primal legend. All right, fine. Don't put any commas in your work, so I just got to start all over. Maps evidently showing the Carboniferous world of a hundred million years. <sighs> Maps evidently showing the Carboniferous world of a hundred million or more years ago. Come on! Maps evidently showing the Carboniferous world of a hundred million or more years ago displayed significant rifts and chasms destined later to separate Africa from the once continuous realms of Europe than the Volusia of primal legend. Asia, the Americas, and the Antarctic continent. Nailed it! <laughs> First try. <laughs>